Welcome back to another edition of The Yoke with Doak. This time, Tom and I are joined by longtime Renaissance Golf Associate Don Plasic. Don is a man of many talents, and beyond golf course architecture, he is also behind much of the Renaissance artwork, such as the routing maps and the yardage books. Here's the first part of a two-part episode with Tom and Don about the soul of a golf course, the routing. Enjoy. Candid Doak doesn't pull any punches. How do I make natural looking contour? Hire the biggest fool in the village and tell him to make it flat. First overrated, underrated, rough. Terribly overrated over the years. You know, I fell in love with Cypress Point when I was a teenager, partly because that routing is so good. You know, you go through, you go from the clubhouse by the ocean, through some linksy stuff, back into the trees, up into the dunes, back out of the dunes into the trees, back through the linksy stuff, and you wind up on the coast. I mean, you, you, you see the whole property, you, you know, it's not just divided up into trees, links, coast, you kind of move back and forth between them. Um, so it's a spectacular way to see the property. It's like, if you were going to walk the property, that's the way you'd walk it. Another one that I used as an example of that in my book years ago was Cruden Bay in Scotland. You know, you sort of start high up the clubhouse is up by the town overlooking the links. You play down into the lower land for two or three holes. Not so spectacular. Then all of a sudden you're up right by the the fourth tee is like right up by a little inlet across from the fishing village. So you play right along there for a hole and then you get up and you're playing along the big dunes from like five to seven and eight. Then you have to wind your way up a hill and play across a field up at the top of it and then plunge back down into the links and go around. So it's, it's a big figure eight. Um, on a simple level, but again, it's moving through different styles of land and, um, and it's probably exactly the way you'd walk the site. If you, if I wanted to show you what that site was like, and we were starting where the clubhouse was, we'd go down to the one end. We'd go look at the little village on the end. We'd walk back through the big dunes. We'd go up the big Valley where eight is, and then we'd go over the field to get to the other side. Would would you prefer to have a course that's got uniform a uniform look and feel to it or a lot of different types of topography, whether it be an open section or and then into the woods and then, you know, maybe out into water or have one landscape that's consistent throughout? I think I probably gave that away with the answer to my last question. Um, I'd prefer variety. I mean, ultimately what you're trying to get by routing a golf course is variety. If you've got different looks to the terrain and different parts of it that you go to, that's a huge head start. Whereas if you've got, 
you know, if you got a typical Parkland site, something like Inverness, then you've got to work a lot harder to make the holes either hit the topography in different ways, creates the variety, or change directions a lot. But that's hard to do when you get to a smaller and smaller site. You wind up with more parallel holes. But in the end, you're going for variety. So if the property has variety to start with, that's a big head start. So Mitchell Driver asks a good question here. How do you know uh, the routing you choose is the best for the property? And how do you choose what directions hole go, holes go with one over 1,000 options? Um, the truth is you never know. That's one of the most interesting things about it. You know, I compare it to like doing routings is like doing a puzzle. You know, like the first time you look at the Sunday New York Times crossword puzzle, you go, oh, this is impossible. I could never finish this. And if you're persistent with it, you get better at it over time and you you understand how things fit together better and it gets easier. And eventually you can do it if you're reasonably smart. Um, doing routings is the same. The only difference is they don't print the answers in the paper the next weekend. <laughs> so you don't know whether the solution you've got that you really like is really the best one. First of all, it's all a matter of opinion. You know, different architects would pick different, you know, if, if we if I laid out five different routings for a golf course, people would have different opinions on what was the best. Um, and then besides that, it's like, okay, how much more, how much more time do I need to give this to really be comfortable that's the best? And I and I don't figure out a better way to put it together. And I'll just, you know, I could name a bunch of examples of where, you know, Pacific Dunes. I thought I had a pretty good routing. You know, first I went there, first I had the maps. And I played around with the maps a little bit before I ever went there. And I, I had a routing before I went there. I didn't expect it to be the final routing. I hope that maybe I found a few holes that would wind up in the final routing. So I took it out there with me and I'm there for like an hour and it's trash because among other things, abandoned dunes used three or four, put three or four holes up into the map that I was working off of. So that like completely messed up some of the, you know, not only, not only did it take some holes out of what I wanted to do, but it took out how I was connecting holes together and where I was connecting holes together. So, okay, so that's trash. And it's like, oh, damn, now you got to regroup and and try to look at this fresh. And what, you know, what can I save from this first one? And how can I put that back together? And, you know, which of these holes do I like? Um, off that first map that I did, there's three holes that are on the, on the golf course today. Um, the sixth, the short par four, the 11th, the par three along the coast. And I think the other one's the 16th. I'm trying to remember for sure, but I'm pretty sure it's the 16th. So, so I did another routing that had those holes in it and a few, you know, quite a bit more of what's, what's in the final routing now. Um, but 
we couldn't walk all the site because it was some of it was covered in gorse. Some of it you could walk, and some of it was just solid gorse, and you couldn't really get through there. A lot of the holes that are kind of on that plain, that plain in the middle of the course, number four along the coast, and and all the holes inland from that twelve and three, that was just solid. Couldn't couldn't walk through there. You know, we knew it was pretty flat, but we couldn't see any features. And then we did get around to the far side and find where 13 and 14 were because you could walk in there from from the north end, kind of from where old McDonald is now. Um, so, you know, we had that piece. and then But then, you know, it was still uncomfortable to Mr. Kaiser because we couldn't walk the whole thing in order at all. Um, so I had a routing and... Over the you know over the months while we were waiting to for the next step, um, you know I was con- I was convinced the routing was pretty good. There were all kinds of questions about it. Oh, you've got back to back par threes. I don't like the idea of back to back par threes. Honestly, I didn't really like the idea of back to back par threes either. When I when I'd come up with ten and eleven on my very first plan before I saw the site, ten was a short par four. But 10T was in the middle of one of David Kidd's fairways, so that wouldn't work. <laughs> so like five minutes after I was there, I was like, well, either this is going to have back-to-back par threes or I'm just going to not use one of these great green sites because this is the only way they fit together at all. Um, so anyway, you know, I had a routing that I liked, but there were questions about it like that. And like the other one was, after number 11 on that previous routing, the next hole went north, not inland where 12 is, but along the coast where number four is. So it connected up, you know, I basically had 10, 11, 12, 13 numbered differently all along the coast, all headed north. And one of Mr. Kaiser's pieces of feedback was, you know, can't we get a hole playing to the south along the coast? Not only because it's better for variety and having the water on the right once, but more importantly, you know, when people are there in the summer, the wind's blowing out of the north. And so having three or four holes, having all the most spectacular holes playing dead into that wind would have been tough, you know. So, and the only problem with trying to accommodate that request was... 10 and 11 were clearly better playing to the north. And 13 was clearly better playing to the north. As it turned out, 4 was better playing to the south. But to make that work, you have to get in there in the middle, cross over in the routing, play a hole south, then get back to the inland side, and then do it again when you come around, play 11, cross away from the coast, have 12, cross again, and play 13. So making those connections without having really long walks from green to tea was the toughest part of it to figure out in the end. Um, You know, but we really didn't know that until they had a fire and the gorse burned and then we could walk the whole thing in the order that we wanted to play it. And I could see that four would be better playing to the south. But then I had to figure out, you know, that wound up changing about six or seven holes of the golf course to make the connections work right to have that one hole play south. So, you know, I'd thought six months before that I had a really good routing and it would be a great golf course. And then six months later, it turned out 
no, this routing is a lot better. You know, I just needed that much more time to come up with it. And part of it was not being able to walk it. But, you know, what that taught me was you have to take a step back. You know, no matter how good you think the routing is, you probably need to like go away for at least a couple of months and just let it all soak in and then come back and try to look at it with fresh eyes. And don't be so defensive that you've got it right the first time you're there. Um, it's a hard thing to do. And at the end of the day, you, you still never know, okay, this is the right thing to do. I'm positive of it. You know, somebody else could, you know, Don could look at it and go like he did for something we're just working on now. Why don't you switch the nines? You know, and normally that's, you, you, you get that conversation a lot. When you, when you come back to the clubhouse at nine, it's like, okay, why, why is this the front nine and why is this the back? I guarantee you, if you ask 10 people, there's at least one of them is going to think it's better the other way around. And you also leave yourself open to the client deciding that it should be the other way around or changing it after the fact. I mean, we both know courses that they've changed at some point in their lives. Augusta changed. Um, you know, most of the time changing 10 or 10 years into the game or 20 years into the game, that's like the kiss of death because now nobody can even remember what hole is what anymore. <laughs> so that's something you really want to get right at the beginning and not change your mind on. Um, you know, at the stage we're, we're at with this project, we still haven't really shown anything to the client yet. So we're grinding hard on which way is better. Cause, cause we want that to be the way we show it to the client. Cause we don't want them to change it. As the course I grew up of Muni playing changed their routing, they flipped it. And I like still describe the holes in the old order. Cause that's what I've played the course the most with. So it's like, I'm talking to somebody, I'm like, Oh, 10. And they're like, no, what, what? And it's all different order. It's confusing. Don being, uh, the artist that draws up plans, uh, B. Niblick had a question about the property and a course's character. And is that determined by just sheer, sheerly the property, the routing, or is it the building process that you see it? Or is it your drawings? I would say it's not the drawings. I just have the enviable job of being able to, to work on them. I, I That's one of my favorite things to do. But you know, the, to try and answer that question is, is difficult. Um, but I think that, you know, that's the craft of the process. And that's what I've learned from Tom. You know, every property is different. You can have a property that is flat and constrained and really on first glance doesn't lend itself to golf. You know, the two, I've had the luxury of listening to Tom answer the questions and sort of formulate some basic ideas. And, you, you know, the first thing that popped into my head was Garden City and Marion, you know, um, those by definition don't lend themselves to be great golf courses. They're odd, oddly shaped. There's roads crossing everywhere. There's, there's some sort of structure and, and, and things going on on all sides. Um, there doesn't appear to be much great golf in there, but that's when, you know, figuring out where the holes go to really get the most out of the property, whatever the property has to offer, 
um, that's where the the real value and the real architecture is. And then if you're able to take the way the holes are configured and really make them interesting T to green in the in the third dimension, greens and bunkers and contours and and all of that kind of stuff, then you really have something. Um, but because every every property is different, um, we have uh, the very good fortune of working with Tom. He has people that really have a lovely piece of ground, like the property in, in Bandon at Pacific Dunes, and Tom has a reputation of really being the guy to talk to, open a dialogue with him if the land is great, because he knows how to find the most potential in the property. But, you know, some of the things I've had the the uh, luxury and, and enjoyment of working on with Tom are properties that, it, uh, when you first look at them, don't offer much. Texas Tech University in Lubbock was on a, uh, a rectangular piece of ground that had three feet of fall. Um, I mean, there was nothing there. I mean, it, you know, a blank canvas can be exciting, but it can be daunting too. Um, so, you know, from that all the way to Pacific Dunes, Terra Edie, Cape Kidnappers, where you have these just epic pieces of property that offer oceans of options, you know, to get that right, there's a lot of pressure, but there's also a lot of work involved in getting something really good out of something that doesn't have any of those advantages. And and like Tom was talking about earlier, you know, just the idea of returning nines, that's a, that's a constraint in the equation that limits you in what you can do, how far you can get away from the clubhouse before you have to turn around and come back. And listening to Tom talk about Pacific Dunes, um, you know, Bally Neal in eastern Colorado, some of the best stuff that, that we've had to, a chance to work on, Tom went off the map to go get those extra holes. And that happened at Pacific Dunes. It happened at, at Bally Neal. And, you know, he has um, the ability to help a client understand that it's worth going and getting those holes so that they can be a part of, of the solution. I think one of the really cool things Tom mentioned about the, the, the crossword puzzle that, that popped into my head is it, Tom's right. The answers aren't posted in the paper the next day. And I kind of think of it as a Rubik's cube, you know, when, when you get a jumbled Rubik's cube, there is a solution and there's an agreed upon solution. And, you know, the question is how fast can you get there? But when you're out in golf holes, the solution is like Tom said, a complete matter of opinion. You know, you don't have the red and the green and the white and the blue all figured out. Yay. You did it. It just doesn't yeah. work that way. And the other thing is it's, it's free form. I mean, a crossword puzzle, somebody's determined the answers for you and and you don't go out of the box and you don't go off the page. Mm -hmm. And with a golf course routing, you can. I mean, 99.9% .9 of people accept that it's got to be 18 holes. That would be a pretty tough convention to fight, although there's a couple of people trying to fight that convention now. But beyond that, there's not really any rules or limits to it. I mean... You know, one of the first ones, boundaries we pushed against, Black Forest is the first one where I went off the page to find a couple of holes. And that was when I worked for Pete Dye. He told me at the golf club in Columbus that he had like 400-acre farm to work with. And he went back to the client and said, 
I got a really good routing, except I need the two acres over there off the property for, for one of the green sites. You know, you got to buy that other two acres. This 400 acres isn't enough. And, you know, to be able to look outside, you know, I have the freedom to do it. Some clients would give you the big middle finger if you told them, you know, their 400 acres isn't enough. But if you're trying to find the best solution, sometimes that's what it takes. So when we were working on Black Forest a long time ago, um, I actually, you know, it was the, the client owned 7,000 acres of woods. So he gave me a topo map and there were no property lines or anything on it. And I, I did a routing and, you know, you couldn't, you kind of had to do the routing mostly off the topo there because the woods were so thick. You couldn't tell very much when you were walking through about how's this whole going to look. I mean, you really, you really had to kind of understand the map and just take a leap of faith. Okay, I know what this hole's doing. So when it gets cleared out, it's going to be okay. So I'd done a routing and they were starting to cut center lines of the holes so we could walk it. And the surveyor comes by and I think Gil Hans and I were out there. The surveyor comes by and goes, I think that sixth hole is, is going across into the state property going over the property line and i said what property line <laughs> you know because there was nothing on my map that showed a property line and i figured well the guy owns seven thousand acres so he's given me something in the middle of it but no <laughs> you know there was there was a property line it wasn't showing on the map and sure enough i'd put one hole you know one hole going over by a hundred yards and another hole with a t on the state land coming back and then another hole down at the bottom that was really close, like really close to the property line. You know, the it was it was state forest and it wasn't marked and it wasn't fenced. It was just out there in the middle of the woods. So we had to like change a couple holes on the fly. You know, we had to take the sixth and the seventh holes and like angle them, you know, like route them on more of a diagonal so you could fit them in and be short of the where the property line was. And then the 13th hole, I had the surveyor come out and I was like, okay, I don't want you to mark this thing and put a bunch of flags or anything. I just want you to show me this, you know, I got a T over here somewhere. I just want you to show me where the line is so I don't go over it. And he showed me and the back of that T is about two feet on our property. <laughs> but, but I, you know, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to build a fence and give it all away. I just wanted to work as close as I could to the edge without drawing any attention to it. Um, so when you've got this property, you win a job or you're fighting for a job and you're, you know, presenting a plan, like where, how do you start the whole process of routing a golf course? <laughs> well, first of all, I hate that. I hate those jobs where they want four different architects to present a plan because this is the most important part of the job and the most time consuming part of it, or it should be one of the most time consuming parts of it. And asking everybody to do it for free is kind of not right. On top of that, you know, the people that are the people that are looking at the maps, a lot of them don't know what they're looking at, you know, if you walk them through the golf course that you've routed, okay, they might have a decent understanding of that. But just to look at the map and say, oh, I really like this one, you know, then they are responding to the artwork or they're responding to 
oh, that looks like a cool hole. But they can't see it in 3D. They don't really know how it's fit in the ground. Years ago, I sent, um, I sent like my first preliminary routing for Rock Creek to our client, Bill Foley. And he called me and he's like, oh, this is really cool. I really love this fourth hole, like playing through that valley up the hill. And then, then the way you get that next hole over the side hills and stuff. I'm like, hold on. You can read a topo map? He's like, yeah. I said, where do you learn to do that? He said, West Point. <laughs> he went to school at West Point. And, you know, everybody in military officers, they have to learn how to read a topo map so they know where they're going. He's the only client I've ever had that can really read a topo map and see what the hell is going on. So, so start, you know, trying to sell something, sell your ideas based on a drawing and a topo map is really hard because the clients don't understand that well. Uh, as for where you start, it's different for different projects. I mean, honestly, for me at this point, it's just like my eye is drawn to something on a topo map. It's like, you know, if if you got really flat ground, then you're looking for, okay, where's there a feature that looks interesting? Because you're just desperate for something to go go work off of. If you got a really steep site like Rock Creek, it's like, okay, where is, where is, you know, we want variety, but we want something that's that's got enough land that's flat enough that we can build a golf course here. Because a lot of that site would have been way too steep. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we... You know, we looked along the creek and then we looked like, oh, that looks too steep. You know, if we come down here, okay, now there's some flat land here. And then, well, there's a little canyon here and I don't know how we get through that and come out the other side. So, you know, that's kind of, you know, okay, let's get a bigger map of this section and start working with it. Um, but, but then, you know, and sometimes it starts with a clubhouse site because they tell you where it is. I don't really like starting that way because it limits your options, like Don was saying. You know, okay, if you're starting here, then you've kind of got to start with the holes around the clubhouse and make sure you've got, you can get out and get back. Um, you know, you don't, we've only done a couple that there was a building that was going to be the clubhouse. Stonewall, both courses actually had a, had an existing building that they were going to use for the clubhouse. So everything revolved around that in terms of the design. Um, and then there's ones like, you know, if you're working on a modest project, public course or something, you know, the clubhouse is going to be like as close to the, where your access point is off the road as possible. Cause you don't want to build a half a million dollars worth of driveway to get back in there. So, you know, something like Bally Neo, which was built for not a lot of money, you know, that the clubhouse and the lodge and everything is like the first good place coming in from the road that, you know, you've got kind of a decent vantage point and the property spreads out enough that you could, you know, that you could have four holes in and out of there reasonably well. You know, you're, you kind of come over a couple of hills and then you, park in the lot in a little valley just before it but all those buildings sit up on a little ridge that overlooks a bunch of stuff and you know it it could have been anywhere on there you know sometimes when you've got a thousand acres of sand dunes it actually helps you to say okay this 
reasonably this has to start here otherwise you could be looking around forever you know find finding the 118 holes they found at sandhills you know that was kind of the tough thing for bill and ben at sandhills was the lodge and everything was going to be down by the creek so they didn't have a place to start or finish so don in in your opinion what was what's been the most difficult hole or aspect of a project uh to route that you guys have had to find you know or figure out uh, you know the most difficult puzzle that you've had to work around wow that's a that's a really great question i think the knee-jerk reaction is to kind of think about what are have been some of the most challenging sites i think stone eagle definitely comes to mind um you know that was a that was a lunar property. Um, I mean, you could you could spend three hours with the right equipment trying to walk where a tee on a par four was going to be and get yourself to the green before anything started out there. And um, I I remember the routing that I think it was Tom Fazio had for that project before we started looking at it and what we came up with could not have been more different for, for many reasons. Um, but you know, I, I, I think Tom's right. I think one of the things he mentions about, you know, a competitive routing process is there's, there's so much value and so much architecture in figuring out where the holes ought to go. It seems it's difficult to sort of relinquish that so early in the process on a project that you might even not even get to do. And if you put your best foot forward and really work at it to say, that's not an integral part of making a golf course. Great would be, you know, that's a crazy understatement. So I, yeah, I think I mean, it's, it's like, you know, when you have a contest to route to design a golf course that ignores the fact that there's going to be all those iterations between this one and the one that you wind up with. It's like what we talked about in the stream song podcast was how much of your job is done in the third dimension and it's sculpture. So it's when you're out constructing and there's so many changes that happen. But even the routing process, you know, the routing process is usually between 10 and 20 days on site before you're really, you know, and you can, it could, it can get broken up a whole bunch of different ways, but you know, I'll go for four or five days and play around with things and then go away for a while and then come back and do it again. Maybe I've got it right by the second time and maybe I got to come back the third time. And, you know, maybe, you know, you've got thing like the thing that we're working on in California. Now you you have a routing that you like, but there are some wetlands conflicts so that you go back and talk to the engineers and it's like, Oh, we better not do that or it'll take two more years to get permits to build this thing. So let's see if we can work around these two little things and change a couple more holes for that. So it's just a lot of time input, you know, before you get to the sculptural part, mm-hmm. it's, it's a big part of what I do. And I, and I would say that's, you know, roughly how important it is to the outcome. You know, you, you start with a piece of land and that's kind of, you know, that limits what you're going to do. You're not going to build a 10 on the doke scale on a lot of pieces of ground. It takes a special piece of ground. But then, you know, you're not going to build a 10 if you don't get the routing really right. 
And then you're still not going to build a 10, even if you've got the routing right, unless you do a great job shaping what you need to shape. And, the, you know, the point of the routing is to try to make it so you don't have to shape so much, mm-hmm. you know, so you don't have to rely on that part so much. But but still, to get something that's a 9 or a 10, all three of those things have to come together. And, you know, the last two are the parts that we spend our time on. And I'd say they're about equal in importance. You know, I, I spend about as much time figuring out where the holes go in the beginning as I do working on shaping greens and stuff when we're out there. Obviously, it takes more time for the guys that work for me to shape the greens. But my time working on it with them is about the same. I think that's one of the most interesting things that in this dialogue is is what Tom was talking about, to have the opportunity to have iterations you know, because if you do, if you have that autonomy and you have a client that's willing to allow you to make changes and adjustments as you go, even if you are rock solid on what you think the configuration of the holes ought to be and you've done your best work, there's still so many opportunities that happen during construction that could be missed or not even pursued if you're, if you're, you know, white knuckled to what's drawn on a piece of paper. And and that's something we get a lot of fun out of is, you know, what's behind a green site. You know, if that green site moves 15 yards, any direction, what you see beyond the putting surface is incredibly special. And before you didn't even know, you know, whatever, you know, it could be a building, it could be um, a A landscape feature, a view, you know, a long range view, a, a, a piece of vegetation that's just absolutely exquisite that didn't even show up on the map and you didn't even know it was there until you spent some time walking around and to just not take advantage of that because you know the agreed upon routing is on the paper and we're not going to deviate that you know i've seen watch tom work really hard to help clients understand that we're only improving what we have but you don't always have someone that allows you to to be, to, to for it to be a fluid process during construction, and that's critical. Yeah, if you look at, you know, if you looked at the final map that we drew of, of our final routing plan before we start a project, and then an as built, there will be a probably a couple holes where the green is moved or something. You know, we just we just find something. But you know, even as much time as we spend on the routing process, when we're out there and we get everything cleared and we're trying to shape things. You know, sometimes it's not me. Sometimes it's one of the guys that worked for me. It was like, what if we moved it over there? And it helps to be open to that. And it helps when clients are comfortable with that. You know, that's what we try to feel them out in the beginning. You can be comfortable with us tinkering around. And this, you know, it's not going to work out to exactly 7,011 yards like it says right here. You know, we're not going to change everything. But it's a process. So it won't be exactly like this. I I think if you think about the way Pine Valley was built, that routing had to have gone through hundreds of iterations with all of the feedback that Crump got from different architects and then Colt came in and, and tweaked some stuff like and that's a perfect example of, you know, a golf course. Then it wasn't as time sensitive as now where you gotta kinda you get a project, you wanna get it done and on a timeline. That one was built over a long period of time, but that the routing had to have changed. Right. And the, you know, the interesting thing about the, the timeline that you talked about is the, 
usually in the routing phase, clients are not in a hurry. Um, they own the land or they've got an option on the land or whatever, but you know, they're not really spending much money on it until the next phase. You know, once construction starts, they want it to be done and they want it to be open because they've spent all this money. But but in the routing phase, you're still kind of you got time to tinker around and try to figure something out. And you know, I can't remember very many projects we've done where they were in such a hurry to build a golf course that you know that we're like rushing through the routing and not sure that we've got the best thing. There might be one or two that just you know, well Stonewall. You know, Tom Fazio had already done a routing and they had permits for that. So they asked me, they told me I could change it a little bit, but without changing, you know, it had to be changes I could make without changing all the like erosion control work that they had permits for that was that sort of tied back to what the routing is. So there wasn't, there weren't, a, you know, we didn't start over on that routing. We started with what they had and figured out how we could tweak it to make it better. So we got a lot of questions from uh, young architects and architects in general about your routing. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, one. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's such a hard thing to learn. I mean, I only, in, in the time I spent with Pete Dye, he gave me like three hours one day on a plan for the honors course that he was working on when I was working at Long Cove, just showed me kind of what he'd done. And he, you know, he made it look like he'd done it all that morning, <laughs> but I'm sure he hadn't. I'm sure it had taken a while, but that was, that was really the only time he ever spent with me talking about routings. I mean, it's not a well-documented process. So everybody in the business is like, Jesus, how do you do this? How can I figure out how to do this better? And really being better as a matter of practice. And the hard thing for a young person is getting practice. You don't get in on the ground floor very often to see what happens. You know, you get there when you're starting to build the golf course. Um, Riley Johns wants to know uh, about your philosophy rega regarding routing and the ebbs and flows of a golf round. And is there a type of balance or rhythm that you try and achieve? And if so, how? Um, I think that's, I think getting a, having a rhythm to the golf course that has some character to it is important. I don't think you can start with one in mind. You know, like I don't think people write songs thinking about the whole flow of them. They get a couple little pieces that they like. And then they try to figure out how to put those pieces together in a beautiful way. It's, it's very similar to that. You, you, you have to start with a few holes. And once you've got that part, then you're like, okay, now do I want to start there or do I want to start over here? And, you know, and then, you know, what do I need in between these things to make it all fit together? You know, both fit together physically and that experience fit together. But, you know, I mean, great golf courses are very different from one or another, one to another. Like, I guess but St. Andrews and Marion are both, they're very different pieces of property, but they're both kind of the same. It's kind of hard at the beginning, easy in the middle, and then it gets hard at the end again. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not, that's not, it's, it's very atypical for a championship golf course to have a stretch like the loop at St. Andrews 
or those middle holes at Marion where you've got all the short par fours in a row that that it goes that short for that long. Most architects think, no, I don't want to do that. You know, I, I want it to keep mixing back and forth on a more regular kind of wave. You know, I've heard people say, well, the cool thing about Augusta is that you you don't play par fours in a row until you get to like nine and 10. You know, it goes four, five, four, three, four, three, four, five. I, personally, I don't think that's important at all. And I almost believe the opposite. Like some of my favorite stretches of my own courses are three or four good par fours in a row. You know, that's almost, maybe you're going out on a limb a little more, but, you know, I think it's important from the rhythm of like, you know, getting people hitting driver on a bunch of holes in a row and getting in a rhythm for doing it. You know, like I don't like a routing. I've built courses with, uh, five par threes but i don't like it when they come like every other hole because you really get out of a rhythm for hitting driver it's just like oh another par three mm -hmm. and so you know going back to basics i don't think you can i don't think you pre-plan what that flow is but i do think it's important i i think the what tom mentioned about music too invariably when we have any of these kinds of dialogues music kind of creeps in and it's music's a part of um, the artistic process and it's a big part of on-site work too um, for all of us and I think there's a you know that you talk about if you're trying for flow and what kind of flow and what's good and what's not there's a there's a cadence there are opening holes that just really perform well as opening holes because they make you interested and comfortable at the beginning and you know there's all kinds of philosophies about how you know how to ease into a round and save the best for last and do you spend some of that in the middle and all of that. And that's where the expertise and the experience comes from on deciding how much weight those things carry. And I think if you take that music analogy and just take it to the next step, you know, you start with a, a rhythm and a melody that you like and you have some lyric that you're trying to work in there. But I think one of the cool things that I've learned working for Tom is the bridge in the song. And the bridge is that hole or maybe a couple of holes that allow you to build the really natural stuff on a site, but you have to connect them somehow. And when there's not a natural connection with another hole that's just laying there, sometimes you got to take a big leap of faith and move the big furniture in the room to get it all to work and then try as to your best to cover your tracks at the end. I mean, the, I'm looking at, just the the pictures on the wall here the sixth that stone eagle is a short par four that's uphill and was not a golf hole in its native state by any stretch the the fourth at at um a par five at um uh suncadia at tumble creek in in washington was a huge leap of faith in but it allowed a connection between holes that were really very very natural and, and then you spend a lot of your, your time and effort and your resources getting that hole to look and play and feel commensurate with all the other natural stuff. And, you know, often that's how you get the best out of a property is build a hole that's not really there so that you can max out on the stuff that's really good right. naturally. Instead of having to do a little work to a bunch of holes, 
having a bunch of holes that are there and just having to do a lot of work to one hole, sometimes that's a better alternative. It's funny to me that we're talking about music because I'm like, you know, I, I would finish in last place on the music aptitude test <laughs> in any group, <laughs> not just among my guys, you know, and, and yet, um, you know, Brian Slonick, who works for me, plays in a band a little bit on the side. Jeff Bradley, who builds bunkers for Bill and Ben, is a drummer. Mm-hmm. Eric Iverson, who works for me, his dad was a jazz musician. So, and and my favorite one, Kai Golby, whose dad was not a musician. <laughs> um, <laughs> Kai, Kai did an interview with somebody years ago, and they asked him, what is the best technical innovation that you have seen since you started in the business 30 years ago? And he said, the iPod, <laughs> because instead of sitting in a bulldozer all day, stuck with your thoughts or the, the bad local radio station, you can listen to whatever you want while you're out there. And it's a, the work turns out a lot better. <laughs> it's, a, it's a state of mind there. And you know, it's a, it's an artistic, like if you're listening. And to I music, was never, you know, the little bit of time that I, sh- that I did shaping for the dyes and at like a high point where I shaped the greens myself, I never thought about music when I was out there. I was always thinking about, fortunately, I was thinking about all these places that I'd been in the UK relatively recently. And, you know, I'd be working along thinking about one place. And then after a while, I get half done with it. I'm like, oh, this is starting to remind me of something else. Mm -hmm. But I had so many of those experiences so fresh in my mind from like the last two or three years before that it was really easy to have the free flow and change your mind on the fly. I think that's one of the, the great things of being around Tom and the other fellas from the very start. Tom has always encouraged us when we were working somewhere to go see what else there is to see. And boy, when you do that in the UK, there's just there's countless, countless infinite number of precedent studies for how do you handle this tight corner of the property? How do you get in and out of there in a safe way that's good for golf, that's interesting and, and memorable and not too awkward? And there, there are precedents for nearly every solution if you look hard enough for them. And then, you know, the, the challenge is to decide, is that an appropriate solution here too? Can you take the spirit of how it works in the British Isles and bring it to wherever you are and get it to work as effectively because the little nuances about why it works um, are not realized in plan view. There's a lot of in the third dimension that's going on there, the timing of the whole, the distance of the shot into a tight corner and, you know, people waiting as a group to play back out of that space, for example, all of that's really got to be working well in order for you to take that idea and, and um, make an iteration of that somewhere else. But you have to have a pretty solid understanding of why it works well before you can pull it off somewhere else. And, and, yeah, and it's, there's it's a great example of that. I mean, if you look at the Irish courses, nearly all the famous Irish courses, there's one hole where you step off a green, back onto a tee, and then hit the tee shot across that the green that you just played. Perfect example. And you're like... How the hell does that work? You know, it's Bally Bunyan. You play down to the third green. And then I think originally the fourth hole was shorter there. But they, you know, they they figured out, hey, we could put a tee the other side of the screen and just hit over the green after people play number three. And it works just fine. 
and what Hinch has one, I think Dudebeck has two or three. Um, nearly all those courses have something like that. And, and you're like, well, how the hell does that work? And people not sneak up and you know why it works is because it's because the, the hole you've the first hole that you played is nearly always a par three. Yeah. So when you get off, when you walk off the green of the next tee, the other guys are still 200 yards away and they're not going to be right up on you. If, if it was the other way around, if you played a par five and then you wanted to go back and play to a par three where you might have to wait, that wouldn't work at all. <laughs> that's that's what I was like thinking in my head is like, well, you'd ha- you couldn't have something that you regularly wait on. I bet doing it like if you have a short par five um, that a lot of people are waiting to get home in two, that you that would be another good one to have play over a green. Yes After. and no. Yes and no, because you you also get groups where they're like fifty yards away, ready to chip onto the green when you're uh-huh. when you're done. So, so it, you know, the only really the, the only way where the dance works really well is when it's a par three. Then well, you can, then you could put the tee anywhere you want around the green or somebody's backyard course or somebody's back. Yeah, or, <laughs> or a place like Terry Eady that gets twenty rounds a day. You can do whatever. Stone Eagle, we've got one of those that. They don't use the tee much. It's only a back tee, but you know, after eight, you can go up to the right of number nine or for number nine tee and hit hit diagonally back over eight green. That's a better angle for that hole, but you can't have everybody on it because you can't make the traffic flow work. Mm-hmm. Um, Jay Blasey wants to know if you could describe a instance where you gave up on like a great hole in order to make a better course. I try to forget about those things after. (laughs) And on top of that, you know, you don't, when I give one away, it's like, then, then there's a whole bunch of people that are like, Oh, he made the wrong decision. He should (laughs) have kept that hole. (laughs) So it's like when you, you know, when you talk about it, it's like, you know, it's like the kiss of death for the golf course. So, um, uh, there's one that I'll talk about that it, it only, it had changed one hole, but it changed the character of the golf course a lot. Originally at Cape kidnappers after the 12th green, you know, now there's a little 130 yard par three with the T right behind 12 green. And you, you play this little short par three with just feels like the cliff edge off the world, just to the left of the green. There's like a bunker that's about five feet wide and then it's gone. And then 14th hole is a short par four. And our original green site for that par three was a hundred feet below where the green is now on this little piece of land that was like hanging off the cliffs, but there was enough room down there for a green. And it would have been the most spectacular hole on a golf course. It would have been one of the most spectacular holes in the world it would have been one of the most scary holes in the world to play because we'd have had to push the tee even f- closer to the cliff edge. And you could barely see, you know, where the where the little shoulder is going up to the present green. You could barely see around the corner of that to see down to where this green was. So, you know, to, you know, scary to, scary to just stand up, literally stand on the tee would have been scary scary to build uh and then the kicker was really tough to get down there and back i mean most of the rest of cape kidnappers is pretty easily walkable 
there's a couple of ravines, but there's bridges across them. So you never have a really downhill or uphill walk on the whole golf course. And that would have been a huge break. You know, just hiking 100 feet back up the hill would have been tough. And then you'd have been kind of out of breath. And it would have taken five minutes. You know, so it would have it would have been a big break in the routing as opposed to the way it is now. We play 13, you're done. You walk right onto 14T, you keep going, seamless. Uh, so we debated that hole for a long time. We didn't really have the, the 13th hole the way it is now. We hadn't really figured that out as an option. We were going to go down below. And the more we looked at it, the more, you know, we, we were like, well, could you build a little like tram to get down there and back up so people don't have to walk uphill on their feet? Because there's no way to get a car path down there. It was just... You know, it was steep, and then it was too small down there. Um, and then t- the the final nail in the coffin of going down there was there were a couple where the little green site was. There were a couple of moundy rolls down there, and we looked at those and we were like, "That could be an archaeology site." Yeah, that's the kind of place that the Maoris might have had a little, you know, very defensible. You know, that could be an archaeological site. And if that's an archaeological site and we get into it, this whole project is going to get delayed for quite a while. <laughs> Plus bad karma. <laughs> so so that was the final straw. Like, okay, we're not going down there. Let's figure out some other way to get it, to have another hole in here so we can make this work. Um, but it was a spectacular hole. And I, it's hard to even show people because you have to even to show. So I tried to show somebody the last time I was there where that hole was and just even walking close enough to the cliff that you could see it was uncomfortable for me. So I'm like, good thing I didn't build that. It would have, you know, it would have sucked all the air out of all the other holes. When is a long walk from like a green to a tee? okay like if you're when it's beautiful number one and you know like you know if your long walk from green to tea is like across a development street that's bad (laughs) you know i'd rather set it up so you can hit across the street so you don't think about the walk so much you know every time you've got a break between green and tea that's lengthy you know, I, I'm trying to avoid those as much as possible in normal circumstances because you get distracted. You look at your damn cell phone. You get out of the flow of playing golf. So if you can avoid that, that's the ideal. If you can't avoid it, but you're on the path from the fourth green to the fifty at Barnboogle, where you're right on top of the dunes looking at the ocean for the first time, you get a pass. (laughs) Nobody looks at their cell phone there except maybe to grab it and take a picture of a wallaby. Um, Cape kidnappers going from 15 green along the edge out to that 16th tee to play back. That's spectacular. We didn't plan that originally. You know, we were going to have the 15th green a little shorter and the 16th was going to be a short par four. And then client was worried about making the golf course longer and I looked for, I was looking for a place where I could get a hundred yards just like that. And I found that tee and said, oh, okay, we could put a back tee there. It was just going to be a back tee. And then I went away and Mr. Robertson came back and he brought his wife 
and they both walked out to see where that tea was. And she, she walked out there and took one look at it and said, everybody should come back here. This is the most beautiful place on the golf course. And this walk is spectacular. So everybody, you know, let's try to make that. So it went from a short par four with a silly long back tee to a short par five where everybody was on that tee. But to do it, you know, we had to do a lot more work in the fairway to make the whole work. Because now, you know, now we had to worry about somebody who could only get 100 yards from that tee. And it was really, <laughs> the land that you would have hit into was really steep. So we had to do a lot of work on 16 to make it work. Uh, but clearly, when, you know, when you've got something that's going to keep the golfer's attention because it's beautiful, a long walk is no big deal. Where you don't have that, I would I would rather now have a blind tee shot that's that you play right away and then walk up and get get the view on your way to your ball instead of walking a hundred yards to have the view from the tee. The sixth hole of Bally Neal is like that. We were originally gonna put the tee up on the dune. And then I just, we had too many, we had too many elevated tee shots. You know, it's a windy place. There was only the back, it was only going to be the back tee that was up there anyway. So eventually I just went, you know, let's not even, let's just, let's just make the tee shot blind. Everybody's going to see the hole soon enough anyway. It's not the prettiest view on the golf course. We're not giving up anything by not having that tee. I think that the concept of walking and walkability is, an integral part of, of all of it. I think everyone in Tom's camp is, you know, there's little, there's little voices that you're listening to while you're trying to figure out where the holes go. And one of them invariably is, is that how, how can we get this to be as walkable as possible? And you know, that the connection that Tom mentioned of getting to highs and lows and, and stuff like that, it, it seems like if you can sell it, if it's worth it when you get there, you know, if you have to work at it a little bit, most of most sites that are flat are walkable by virtue of the f- fact that they're flat. But the more interesting sites often have a couple of climbs and and things like that. So you have to figure out you're you climbing while you're playing golf. Or are you climbing in between playing golf? And when you can get those climbs like Tom's talking about while you're playing golf, it's better because you don't notice it as much. You're still doing as much physical effort as you need to to get from point A to point B, but your ball's in play and that's that presents differently to a golfer than it does when it's in your pocket and you're on your way to the next tee. And I think that's one of the high-level things that we have learned from Tom and work really hard on is it isn't, routing isn't just the tee, the landing area, and the green. It's how the holes... Um, relate to each other the proximity of the green to the next tee to the to the back tee to the forward tee you know trying to get them to fit together so they're intimate and close but in a way that's safe and interesting at the same time and that takes a lot of work too you know there's there's and you figure that out during construction where Tom spends so much time in walking and looking around and and getting all those things as intimate as possible but doing it in a safe and thoughtful way. And that's, there's a lot of artwork there too, and don't I you would think? Say, well, there's, there's two things in modern golf that have, that have made that a lot harder for most architects on most courses. One is 
if you're trying to get to 7,200 yards of the back or 7,500 or whatever, and, you know, I mean, we're still building most courses for, you know, the white tees are 6,500 yards, plus or minus, 6,200 to 6,500. You know, the further from the from that tee to the back tee, the harder it is to get both of them close to the last green. It just doesn't work. So, you know, if you're thinking about the back tee first, which a lot of good players who are designers do, then every hole is an 80 or 100-yard walk from the green to the middle tee where most people are playing. And if you're thinking about the middle tee and getting that close, then the further you have to go back, the harder it is to find an angle where it's safe. You know, you can't you can't do what St. Andrews does and just go back right alongside the previous fairway. You know, that if if people were playing there on a busy every busy day from the open championship tees, people would get killed every day because the back tees are like 50, 60, 80 yards short of the green on the right the whole way around, right where every average player loses their second shot to the green. Um, so, you know, the longer you try to make the golf course from the back tees, the harder it is to get the intimacy right. And then, and then the other one is cart pass. You know, once you assume that people are going to be in carts, then you really don't care whether they're close together or not. It doesn't make you put them far apart, but when you stop paying attention to whether they're close together or not, you lose the thread entirely. I imagine maintenance is another thing that goes into it a little bit in the sense of if the greens are close by, it's it's less gas, easier, faster to maintain, easier to mow greens or, you know, does it, does that play a role in routing at all? A little, maybe not as much as you, you're thinking there, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, for maintenance, the old style courses were, you know, you've got a bunch of parallel halls and you can mow green. You don't necessarily mow all the greens in order because yeah. it's because it, it's it's much faster to hop from this green across the next tee to the green that's coming back the other way two holes later. And you just there's a you know, you can get around much quicker, whereas, you know, the modern courses that are all stretched out and and every hole is a beautiful view. You pretty much have to maintain the golf course in the order that you play it. And so the maintenance guys are going all the way around the golf course every day to get it done. Yeah, I was thinking about McKenzie and how he'd have like five greens all yeah. within like sure. Uh, if you drew a four hundred yard circle, there'd be. I was five. just at the, I was just at the Valley Club the other day. You know, uh-huh. they had a they had a flood event there a, a month ago, and they were trying to put the pieces back together. They had, they had five feet of mud come across one of the greens. But that course, there's a couple of little hills that he just maxed out as many holes as you could possibly get around them. So this, there's this one hill in the middle of the property that the third green sits right into the foot of it. The fourth tee is elevated, playing off it. Fifth hole plays past it. Seventh hole comes back to the foot of it. The eighth tee is on it. The tenth green comes up to the foot of it. And the eleventh tee is on it. So three of the four par threes, the tee is on that hill. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you.